How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Stretch the canvas. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Well, thank you, Tom. That was succinct and to the point. Thank you. Thank you. Nicely done. How have you been? What's been going on? Well, there's a lot been going on, Dr. Joe. We live in the great state of Massachusetts. It's like one of the big healthcare capitals of the world, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the amazing institutions we have here is Boston Children's Hospital. Yep. And they have been receiving threat after threat. It is unfathomable. What what are these threats about, Tom? These threats are about misunderstandings about the nature of gender-affirming care. There have been two bomb threats so far, and people might be wondering, like, how could someone get to the point where they're sending bomb threats to a children's hospital? I understand. You do? I, I, I do. I know the, the process these people underwent to think the things they think. And to help everyone understand it, I have on the show today, Brianna Wu, an MMA professional ass kicker, Alana McLaughlin. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. I am so delighted to have you here. Such, it's, it's remarkable that, that we have to talk about this topic at all, as if there's something wrong with gender-affirming care. So where do we want to start? Well, uh, as I said to Brianna and Alana before we started, uh, what's old is new again. Yeah. Mm. This is a pattern of harassment that is very familiar uh, to all parties. And it starts with a story called Gamergate. Yeah, which actually uh, a lot of it happened right here in Massachusetts. So um, one of the biggest events uh, that really defines the modern uh, political discourse and more specifically how that discourse has been poisoned uh, is an event from 2014 known as Gamergate. And you know, uh, to tell the long and short of it, uh, women in the game industry were targeted with uh, a really extreme set of harassment for asking for better working conditions uh, in the field. Uh, you know, there was a, a independent game developer here in Massachusetts by the name of Zoe Quinn. Uh, she had some utterly fake allegations uh, made up about her by the fringe parts of the internet. Uh, and that kind of exploded with this hate and harassment campaign online. Um, what we didn't know about it at the time was that Gamergate was the playbook for how we argue on the internet. Uh, one of the people primarily behind Gamergate was Steve Bannon. Uh, Steve Bannon, as we all know, helped Trump get into the White House. Uh, and today we've seen this exact same playbook uh, used uh, in this particular instance, the Gamergate playbook being used by the libs of TikTok account uh, to basically get this propaganda about trans healthcare out there to literally millions of people put it in these uh, just really sensational, angry, hateful, 
fake information terms and get people so riled up that literally you have Boston's Children's Hospital uh, shut down with bomb threats. So, you know, this is, it's the technical word for it is stochastic terrorism. And, you know, the, the truth is we've been talking about this since 2014 and it's, it's not getting better. And there's a long history of why it's not getting better, which is very specifically because of certain policies that have failed to take this kind of extremist rhetoric uh, seriously. So, Brianna, what, what is the game book? I, I mean, the playbook then of this. Sure. So what they did to me is, you know, Dr. Joe, if I went through your entire life, I'm sure I could find something to attack you with to make you seem like a terrible person, right? Even so, today, absolutely. You, uh, it's just no one can withstand this. So the problem is so much of our lives are online today that they can go and, you know, I don't know if you have written academic papers or they can look through your academic history or every social media post you've ever made, every tweet you've ever had. How about everything you said on this show and find little 15 second clips and then have an entire mob to take that and then to turn it into, turn you into a shadow version of yourself, like this, this really dark version that's scheming or lying or they, they find stuff to take out of context and to attack you with. And, you know, the, the truth is they're trying to make the cost of speaking up so high that it's simpler to just say, stay silent. So what you see on the trans healthcare issue is this exact playbook. You know, you've got doctors out there trying to have just medical, um, you know, discussions about how do we help trans kids? You know, what's the best course of action, action for, for healthcare? You know, we don't have a clear course of action on this yet. You know, professionals are trying to have their own discussion and figure out how to proceed. And their free speech is being impinged upon by this mob. And it's very, very frustrating. I think it, it fundamentally threatens us as a democratic society. The problem is that they're very effective propagandists and they've yeah. been at this for a long time. They've got a lot more practice, I would say, than, uh, than the trans community does, for instance. Um, and they've also got the advantage of, you know, decades of fear mongering about trans people built into our culture, like just baked in. So that, that's, uh, I think that's a factor as well. And what has that fear consisted of? What do you think? Well, I mean, think about the uh, the villains and half of the slasher flicks in the 80s and 90s. You know, instead of it, it started with Psycho, um, the whole like, oh, well, th there's this person who is assigned male, but they dress up like a woman and kill people. And and for some reason, that just became like a meme within horror movies is like, uh, if there's if there's a serial killer, it's not exciting unless they're wearing a skirt, I guess. Uh, so so it, it's sort of. I mean, I can't, re I, I can't tell you how many times growing up, um, I had uh, people compare me to Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, and this was, you know, the 90s. So that was like a big deal. You know, that, that was a new movie at the time. So it, there's, there is this like this concerted effort to paint trans women, especially the trans community at large, but trans women, especially as somehow predatory and dangerous. And uh, against that backdrop, 
sort of right-wing, I, I would say outright fascist propagandists have uh, sort of, they've prepped the battlefield um, for decades in advance. Yeah, I think that's really, really well said. I mean, it's, it is, you know, trans people are the target du jour. And I think it comes back to, you know, th this question. So I didn't grow up in Massachusetts. I grew up in Mississippi. And something I saw in Mississippi was very much uh, this fear that people are coming to take away your culture, right? So in the video game industry, the idea was, uh, you know, women, those feminists, they're coming to take away our culture. And I think what we're seeing in the same way with the trans debate is it's this fear that because you have some people that, you know, need to uh, basically get healthcare to live more authentic lives, I think there's a real fear by certain elements in our society that they're coming to take away a, a culture or things that, uh, you know, basically a, a way of living that is very important to some people. So I think we're seeing a really sensationalistic backlash against that. More specifically with libs of TikTok, what is so troubling is the rhetoric. You know, I think that even though I don't agree with them, people that have, you know, they're, they're skeptical of trans civil rights, I think to a certain extent, there's a free speech issue there. What's really concerning about libs of TikTok is they're taking that from a discussion to stochastic terrorism because they're dehumanizing everyone involved in the discussion. And it's not this doctor is providing health care. It's this doctor is disfiguring children. This doctor is, you know, uh, these people are groomers. This they're, they're thing is teaching your child. Yeah, right. All of that. So they're dehumanizing the other part of the debate that is really pushing it in a way that is leading to violence. And like we saw with the Boston Children's Hospital being shut down with the bomb threat. And if I can uh, sort of add an addendum to that, it, it definitely follows the same reactionary pattern of speaking to the fears of uh, lower and middle-class white people about they are coming for your children. You know, when they talk about the destruction of culture, it's not just the, uh, well, I mean, it, it's, they're, they're tearing down your Confederate monuments. They're, they're uh, mutilating your children and making them think it's okay to be queer, which, you know, you just can't do that. You know, um, it's, you know, my own experience, I, I grew up in South Carolina in a uh, holiness church. You know, my parents go to church five times a week. And, uh, you know, I kind of got disowned because the church was more important than their kid. Um, but, but I'm very familiar with the, that line of thinking where there's good and evil. And, you know, they're, they're, it's a very black and white value system. Um, and you find that over time, they do begin to make exceptions for certain things like divorce, you know, like, that's okay, that can be excused, but being queer, being trans, that's even worse. You're basically a demon. Uh, so so they, they use the same sort of fear mongering, the same, these, they, they speak to the same anxieties. It's always about your kids are being led astray. These people are Pied Pipers. They're, they're going to destroy everything you've ever stood for. And, and they speak to those fears. And uh, it's like, like you said, the dehumanizing of trans and queer people. It's, I mean, it's, decades old, centuries at this point, I would say. It spreads so easy. So I'm happy to report that I was never so far gone as to say like, these people aren't human or blah, 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 blah. But I was one of those people who was like, well, the free speech, free speech, free speech, man. 
And when I first heard the term stochastic terrorism, I laughed my ass off. Really? Yeah. Well, I didn't laugh my ass off, but I was like, that's JW, blah, blah, blah. Right. Because, you know, because what did I know? Like, I, I was only surrounded by usually mostly other young white men with the eternal victim complex. Right. Of like, they're coming for me. They hate us because we're white men. It's like, no, they hate us because we're assholes. <laughs> well, I do. I do really want to say there's nothing simple about the free speech debate here. What I think is, is really hard here. There, there's a wonderful book uh, by uh, the former uh, deputy of uh, uh, basically our State Department. Uh, he wrote a wonderful book on disinformation. And he was talking about how they weaponize our ideals against us. And the same considerations that they're using against us, they would never allow in the opposite direction. So I, I do want to say, I think it's good for us to have open debate as a general rule. The problem is online, you know, we've really created this monster where, you know, the it's not just the harassment, it's the death threats. It's the disinformation. It's when we can't tell right versus uh, up versus down to the point that you know, medical professionals can't even get out accurate information about how a vaccine against COVID can, can help you. So we've built this, this machine that really excels at just help. We cannot have the national dialogue anymore. So something I believe very strongly is I think your older self I would label that as more of an information idealist. You had an idealistic like premise of how free speech should work. I want to be a free speech realist. And my idea of how free speech works is we've got to think about how free speech can be shut down. We have to think about how bots can weaponize these things that we've built to make it impossible to get accurate information out to people. We have to take a really realistic look at what we built and always have that, that highest principle in our mind of helping us have a discussion to be able to educate ourselves and make decisions as a democracy. That's what I think we need to do. And that's where we have to pay attention to material reality. You know, yeah, 100%. Uh, excited when I start hearing about that. But but now the, the thing is, um, the reality is that you can't really engage in open debate with some of these folks because they're being disingenuous. Like they've already planted their ideological flag and nothing you say will sway them. And they're not engaging in good faith discussion. They're not going to listen to anything you say, and they're going to throw whatever they can at the wall to see what sticks. Um, and ultimately, you know, on, online debate, as it were, uh, mostly just comes down to it, it always inevitably it just becomes harassment because they've found that with enough sort of uh, shouting you down uh, with enough harassment, if they can dogpile you enough, then they win. And that's it. Um, and that's why, you know, I just don't even engage in those discussions anymore most of the time unless I just... Uh, I'm feeling froggy, you know, like I can't tell y'all how many death threats I got uh, after my fight. I still get them. Like, it's just every once in a while, like I'll check my notifications and someone will have gone down and commented on a dozen of my photos, calling me a man and saying that I'm disgusted, mm -hmm. throwing women's sports and blah, blah, blah. And I'm a coward that won't fight men. Like, it's all the same shit over and over again. Yeah. And, so like Joe Rogan dedicated mm -hmm. like an hour and a half just bitching about 
trans people in sports, but like specifically about you and your fight. It's funny because I'd heard he hadn't actually mentioned me specifically. I know he did the, I, he did that about Fallon back in like 2014, but uh, I'd heard he'd not actually mentioned me specifically. And then I saw a headline saying that he actually supported me competing because I was open about being trans and that's a whole other can of worms, but. Can, can I come back to this stochastic terrorism? Some of our listeners may not know what that is. So Brianna, would you like to start with that definition? Sure. Stochastic terrorism is, it is, how can I put this? It's this theory that if you're trying to track down terrorism, um, there's a way to create it with these hate moms or just overall anger. And then you cannot predict where it is going to erupt. So um, if you want to think about it in a more traditional way, like ISIS might put out a ton of propaganda and then you don't know when they're going to have a suicide bombing or something like that, right? That's stochastic terrorism. Um, you can kind of trace it back to, uh, you know, the, these recruitment websites. In that same way, a lot of the the fringe elements in American politics, uh, unfortunately, are are literally copying that stochastic terrorism model. Uh, we see this with, uh, you know, QE Farms, uh, HN. HN's a great example of stochastic terrorism. You know, this was created during GamerGate. Um, you had you know people come in. They are. You know, red pill stuff. I hate women. Let's dox women. Let's talk about who we hate. Let's talk about who needs to be killed. And then that is directly tied to the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand. Like there's a direct line between HN kind of creating this community where people can talk about how much they hate Muslims. And then one of their members that decides to go and shoot up a mosque and, and, and slaughter 49 Muslims. So um, it's, it's this theory of terrorism that, you know, you have to kind of, you can't predict where these communities of hate are kind of going to erupt violently, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's a very effective model because it's terrorism by word rather than deed. Like yeah. someone doesn't have to actually organize a terrorist operation, a terrorist plot. All they have to do is put out the call to action, knowing that these communities are already galvanized and primed to react. And the like, one, one of the reasons I'm so pissed about things like Boston Children's Hospital is that I've noticed the pattern like retroactively, that the, the attempt to start to start the campaign at stochastic terrorism, it started in terms like cultural Marxism. Yeah. Which people are sick of Nazi analogies. This is what the Nazis did with a term called Judeo-Bolshevism, hmm. which who knows, might've even worked here. Now it's woke. And I'm not saying that everyone who uses the term woke as a pejorative is a Nazi, but it's so convenient. It's the way to hide, like calling someone an Edward lover. It's like, oh, yeah. you're, you're woke. Yeah, it's, um, I feel like a lot of this is because of um, sort of a lack of political will uh, on the left or, well, not even on the left, but for liberals, um, which I, I don't know if, if your audience agrees with me, but uh, there, I would say there is a difference between a liberal and a leftist. And there's sort of been this, um, I mean, growing up, uh, looking in history books, uh, public education, the idea that there was this sort of enlightened centrist view where you could, uh, you know, bring everyone to the table. But at, at some point, you have to recognize that 
some folks are only want to burn the table. You know, they want to smash it up. They don't want to take part in it. Um, and I think because of that sort of that fence walking, um, that lack of political will, we've we've been unable to acknowledge the, where these ideas are coming from. Um, you know, and I know everybody complains about using using the word Nazi, using the word fascist, but this is what these ideals are. You know, one of the one of the greatest sins I think in uh, my history books growing up was that they showed us the Nazi book burnings. They didn't tell us what books they were burning. You know, those books were about queer identity. Those books were about trans identity, and and that just wasn't discussed. They don't tell you that when the concentration camps were liberated, queer people were put back in, and and these ideas just persist because we have not been honest with ourselves about the history. Uh, so when we say like these ideas are are fascist, they are Nazi. It's because they are. I mean, and even then, like Hitler himself said, he was inspired by the way the United States treated black people and indigenous people. So I mean, this is just a long thread going back and back. And we just due to a lack of political will on the left, or maybe because of the political will on the right, this uh, the the waters have been muddied and this history has been ob obfuscated. Um, and as a result, we're dealing with the same things in 2022 that we were dealing with in 1922. And I'll say, uh, you know, our listeners are very, very smart. And they know that when we're talking about politics, we're not singling any of them out. I like this podcast called The, the West Wing Thing by this man, Dave Anthony, who is very into like politics and again, the rise of fascism. But he'll pause every now and then and say like, we're not talking about voters specifically. It's like, because we don't know you, the listener, like personally, we're not Santa. Uh, so when we're talking about things like left, right, Nazi, fascist, centrist, we're talking about like the very concepts in there, the way they're put in practice, because I mean, we can't ignore it. Like I have the luxury for most of my life of like saying like, you know, th this doesn't matter, but it, it does. I'm sorry. <laughs> hundred percent. I can, can I talk a little bit more concretely about some solutions to all of this that, that I've been advocating since 2014? Um, one of the biggest calls I had during Gamergate was with the Obama White House. Uh, this was when Eric Holder was uh, uh, our attorney general. And I was trying to get them, uh, Catherine Clark, our congresswoman here in Massachusetts, was, was working with me and trying to get the FBI to uh, take some of these threats on my life seriously and, and prosecute them. And the truth is the Eric Holder Justice Department uh, declined to prosecute this slam dunk case of death threats, rape threats, extremely credible, extremely direct, knowing who was behind them. Uh, they declined to, to prosecute this. And that sent a very terrifying message that we saw um, continuing through like the Trump presidency and the 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 run up to that. And now, you know, on to libs of TikTok today. So what I want to see, this is not a left versus right thing I'm talking about. I'm talking a law enforcement uh, response to this. Very often, these cases happen across state lines. Uh, very rarely is someone sending me a death threat or a rape threat going to live right here in Massachusetts. So Massachusetts prosecutors can get them and go 
you know, uh, bring a case against them. They usually live in some other state. So that makes the FBI the appropriate person to uh, prosecute this. Uh, Danielle Citron did a study on this and found uh, out of 30,000 cases they identified for their study of credible threats to kill someone online, uh, police only prosecuted about six of them, and all of them were cases of that against police officers. So what I want to see happen from a concrete policy point of view is I want to see parts of the FBI, I want to see us fund a very specific division to prosecute these high-profile uh, cases of trying to you know, threaten to murder people across the internet, which is a crime. Because I think that introduces consequences into the situation, and I think that will make people think twice before using this, basically having what is fun for them by uh, basically hunting someone and, and causing them psychological damage. That's step one. Two, I would like to see Nancy Pelosi make Congresswoman Catherine Clark's bill uh, making swatting a federal crime. Uh, I would like to see her bring that to the floor. This is something the right and the left 100% should agree on. Swatting is when you basically threaten, uh, you, you tell someone there's an incident at someone's house, they need to send an armed SWAT team, they show up, they bust in with guns, and sometimes people get killed. Uh, Catherine Clark wants to make that a federal crime. This wastes police resources and it also puts the people being swatted in danger. So we need to do both of those things today. The third one is I want to see social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook hold accounts like Libs of TikTok to higher standards. You know, that account has been uh, reported and suspended multiple times. It's obvious it's acting in bad faith. They're not willing to take the political hit and say, you know what, you're encouraging violence. We don't want to have you on our platform. They have a responsibility. Like the moment that our hospitals in Massachusetts are being shut down is the moment they don't get to keep having uh, free speech on that platform, I think. So, um, you know, I think those three steps would do a lot to cool down the debate and help us have a conversation that's based in fact. I think those would be really great steps, but um, I hate to be cynical here, but I don't think it's really possible for a number of reasons. And one of those is that, you know, I talked about political will. Uh, I would say a big part of the reason that like the, the credible threats against you weren't taken seriously or investigated, it's, and the only ones that do get taken seriously are the ones against cops is because uh, law enforcement, including the FBI, um, is kind of full of these, these right-wing uh, ideas and ideologies. Um, I mean, we know who gets gunned down disproportionately by police uh, in the United States. Um, and granted, like numbers wise, like absolute numbers, sure, maybe more white people get killed than black people, but that's because it's literally like a majority of the population. But uh, black folks statistically get killed more often by police than white people do. And the thing is, like, when it comes to taking care of trans people, taking care of black people, taking threats against minorities seriously, there's no incentive because they, a lot of these police officers agree with the points that these these uh, stochastic terrorists are making. Um, you know, I've, I've been involved in a lot of protests in Portland in the past few years. 
And I will say, every time you go to one, whenever there's a line of riot cops, they're always, they always have their backs to the Nazis. They always are facing towards the leftist protesters. And this has been a pattern the whole six years. Even before we had uh, Patriot Prayer and Joey Gibson organizing weekly rallies, before we had uh, fascists from Alaska and Texas flying into these rallies, um, the pattern still remained the same. There was one where, uh, I don't know if you guys heard about this a few years ago, there was a, a triple murder um, on the Max train. Uh, the stabbing, right? Double murder. Yeah, the, the Max train stabbing. Uh, there were two people killed there and a friend of mine was stabbed in the neck. And the guy who did it, Jeremy Christian, was at one of these rallies a week or two before I was there and he was walking around Sieg Heiling with an American flag on his back. And, uh, you know, th this guy was was a known threat. Um, and at this rally, there were over 150 of these right wing fascists out here doing this demonstration. And the opposition to them was about a dozen kids dressed as clowns, just trying to sort of mock them. And there was a line of riot cops in front of these fascists facing towards these kids dressed as clowns, pushing them out of the way so these fascists could march. And that's been the pattern the whole time. So uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't speak on behalf of at least one of the listeners. Are you uh, Antifa? That, that question is um, kind of loaded. Uh, I I, anyone anyone who has anti-fascist ideals as you know a broad category can be called antifa sure um but the idea that like there's some shadowy cabal of of uh you know this militant organization a singular militant organization you know uh it i mean i i have anti-fascist ideals i will say that um but but the thing is like again it, when we talk about these concrete solutions, these concrete steps that could be taken, um, the capitalists that run Twitter don't care about minorities. They care about the dollar. And if they're generating a ton of outrage, like that outrage is bringing in money, they're going to keep allowing that outrage to happen regardless of the human cost. And I, I have to say, I think you're falling into black or white thinking, though. You know, I, I, I understand. I understand. If I could just say, I know so many people that work at Twitter on the trust and safety team. They're not. I know a capitalists. few of them, too. These are. I know a these few are, of them, too. But those are the workers. I, those are not the CEO. I think there's good work being done by people at Twitter. And I think I've also seen, I, I personally worked with a lot of law enforcement that takes this stuff extremely seriously, particularly prosecutors. I think they're asking for tools to do their job better. And well, I think we would be well served to give them those tools. There are some good cops, but systemically, the, the political will is not there. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. These systems have to change. Individual cops, individual programs are not going to do it. It's it's just very important that people know what they're talking about because it's there's a there's a concept called the Overton window, which is beginning and end of the range of acceptable thought, and it's been getting narrower and narrower. It feels over the years where it's like, ooh, can't say that. And to talk about like things like law enforcement reform or trans activism in general, you're one of them if you start talking like that. And it's like, nope, not Sadly, I'm one of them. Yeah, and we need to understand, we need to know the concepts we're talking about if we're going to have a discussion. And I don't think people are doing that. 
Well, and again, this is my, my very cynical take here as someone who worked in the special operations community and saw the personalities that are there and having trained at a lot of the same facilities and in the same programs as law enforcement personnel that are on SWAT teams, I know where their politics lie. Yep. Um, and for every good cop trying to do something for queer and trans people or every good cop trying to push back against racism on the force, there are a dozen that are the exact opposite. I mean, you can, uh, I'll encourage folks to Google Portland Nazi cop, uh, Portland, Oregon, where I live now, you know, which a lot of people have this idea that it's a bastion of liberalism and left wing thought. People forget Oregon was founded as a white supremacist state and black people. It was like a sundown state. If you're familiar with sundown towns, it was a sundown state. Um, and a, a few years ago, there was a cop on the Portland police force who was he got fired for erecting shrines to dead Nazi soldiers in public parks. And then he sued the city and got his job back. And in 2019, he retired as the head of vice. And this man made no secret of his Nazi ties. So we have uh, another uh, frequent guest that you would get along with very well. He was uh, an eight year army veteran who trained alongside people who are now with Blackwater. So he knows. Yeah, I used to train at Blackwater. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So he, he knows, he knows the same thing. I know, like we know what their politics are like while, you know, it, it's like army regulations will say, Oh, you can't say, you can't go on record saying anything that's uh, problematic, but like everyone's throwing around the F slur. Everyone's being openly racist. I mean, the special operations community is overwhelmingly white, uh, like by a vast mar margin. And when you look at like the demographics of the army in general, it's a lot more, there are a lot more minorities, but in the elite, you know, in the special forces, it's mostly white dudes. I think there's a, and I, I hope that this can just be a respectful disagreement here. And this is, this is my bias. I'm not cynical. I, I agree with every problem you're talking about here. I, I think that sometimes on the left, we have a tendency to take what I call the doomer pill, <laughs> like to think like everything is terrible and we can't change any of these systems unless we do what we call an engineering, which is a boil the ocean strategy, which is do something that's so big, we're going to reinvent all the law enforcement in the entire United States. And I agree with you, you've identified a core problem here, but I think that you can't get cynical and, and tell yourself like, oh, this is irredeemable. Oh, nothing can be done here. I, I really do believe if you were to go fund, because we're talking about the, the Boston situation here, I do think if you were to pass Catherine Clark's bill and then give the FBI this tool to then go and do like back IP traces and find out who is swatting people and give them the tools to act in this situation, I think that would be a net positive. Now, are the would a department like this be used like for the cases they found most convenient, like cops and things like that? I don't know if I agree with that. I think that generally speaking, they respond to a lot of political pressures. So I think things that were high profile that were in the media, I think this would give them tools to go solve this. So do I think it's going to be perfect? No, but I at my core am an engineer. And I think when you've got 
I, I think we don't have one 100% solution. I think we have like 101% solutions. And that's just the way I'm built to think, how can well, we improve the system? I, I understand that. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I would just remind you that, you know, internal memorandums from the FBI and from other federal agencies have found that, you know, the largest terrorist threat, internal terrorist threat in the United States is from uh, white identity extremism. It's, it's from yeah. white supremacists. But yeah. instead of addressing that, they don't put resources towards that. Instead, they invented a new category of black identity extremists and have been pursuing that avenue. Just yeah. a reminder. I, I'm aware. It, we don't agree. We don't disagree on the problem. We just have a disagreement on what the tactics are. What I'm hearing from you is uh, more of a these institutions are irredeemable. And I'm like, let's look at these institutions, identify problems like the ones you're saying, and see how we can make that better. That's my approach to that. So, so let me just jump in here, because Rihanna, you said what I am hearing, which is such yeah. an important phrase. Is that what you are saying? What Brianna is hearing? What do you think? I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, I I don't subscribe to the belief that, you know, we can just abolish police and crime will magically go away. Um, but I also very much recognize that police do, the, the police don't protect us. They don't protect us. They don't protect our communities. They, uh, I mean, again, Brianna will probably think I'm just having a lot of black and white thinking here. And I've been accused of that by my therapist before, huh. um, you know. PTSD, it's a, it's a thing. But um, I, I don't think we can look at the data and, and think that the police are particularly redeemable. You know, the, the, the phrase is a bad apple spoils the bunch, not, you know, one bad apple, you just get rid of it, you know, be, because it, it's all bad apples. It's all bad apples. Like one good apple doesn't make the, the, the bucket of, of rot, you know, fix itself. Um, I, I do think police as they are now in the United States are to an extent irredeemable. That, that system is irredeemable. Um, I think uh, if, you know, like, I, I think we do need some sort of law enforcement, but that said, the system that we have right now and the, the, the sort of foundations it's built on, um, it, it needs an overhaul, a complete overhaul. And I don't have a solution for how we do that because it's so entrenched. But, um, you know, like, I, I don't think a program here and there is going to fix anything because that's, that's kind of how we got where we are now. You know, we put a little money towards this program. We put a little money towards that program and, and we tell ourselves we've done something and we expect it to get better. But the fact of the matter is things don't get better unless we agitate for it constantly and regularly. You know, there's uh, th this is one of the critiques I have of this sort of centrist viewpoint. The enlightened centrist viewpoint is that bad bad ideas and bad people just die out over time. You know, the the arc of history tends towards justice. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. I think we have to fight for every advance we get, and we have to fight every step of the way. And that work never ends. It won't end in my lifetime. Here's you know. Um the I am approach to this, if you don't mind. Seeing so, it's my show, so I'm just gonna do it anyway. So, but, but here's the idea. Um, I, I'll, I'll just tell you a story. When I was covering an inpatient psych unit uh, for another colleague, and there's a, what's called a code red, 
Code red means there's a dangerous situation, an imminently dangerous situation on a locked inpatient psychiatric ward. And as the person on call uh, and the only physician in the building at that time, I go there. And there is a gentleman who is enraged, absolutely enraged. Don't know why, but they are enraged and people are scared by this rage. Mm -hmm. And I go into this room and this man says to me, you're just gonna inject me, right? You, I mean, you're here to, to, to inject me with antipsychotic. And I said to him, are you a lumper? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you've just lumped me in with every other psychiatrist you probably met. So are you a lumper? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, you don't know me. I'm just interested, why are you so pissed off? What's going on that you're so pissed off? I mean, if you, if you want an injection, we can give you an injection. If you want to take a medicine by mouth, we can do that. But why are you so angry? I'm not going to lump you in with all the other psychotic patients because you're not. You're unique. And I think that we run the risk as human beings of just doing this. We are still primitive tribal individuals. We look to be a member of a group. And what the I am is saying is we're one group. It's called humanity. We all are doing this. So now how do I step back and wonder why is that police officer doing this? Why is this system doing this? Why are these members doing this? And just as the two of you, the four of us are having a dialogue, a discussion, we don't have to agree. But that doesn't mean we don't respect each other's point of view. That's, for me, that's the key. Why are these people doing what they're doing? What, what is their motivation? And the only way I'm going to find out is by talking with them. How do we do that? How do I step back enough to be able to project peace so that somebody else knows I'm not gonna activate my mirror neurons. So you guys know about mirror neurons? Mirror neurons, right? We will, we will mirror what other people think or feel. But once we know about those, we can step back, do something different and activate their mirror neurons in a different way. So these are critical discussions to have, but we, we also run the risk of just doing the same thing. How do we yeah. step back? I, I thought, I think a similar thing, but I think the, I think it's putting the cart before, before the horse to say, let's just talk to them. Because the reason people become like anti-trans or like extremists is because it fills the need for a community. And it's very easy when you're, you know, uh, a socially awkward teenager, you can immediately fall in love with a group of friends who are just like you. You can you know, game together, you can talk to each other, and you can hate on the same thing. I don't know how you undo years of that by asking them what they're pissed about. And it's another thing when they're there to kill you. 
Well, and and yeah. as a caveat to that as well, I would point out that they know this, like they know that we are operating in good faith, that we're going to ask them what they're angry about. And they would then use that as an excuse to start talking about white genocide and and how the Jews are controlling the media and the trans people are converting your kids. And and they'll use that as the excuse to go ahead and start spouting their propaganda. But whenever you try to counter it, they will just shout you down because they're not good faith actors. And I guess that's where like it in a, in an in an ideal situation, in a perfect world, I would love to be able to like sit down and reason with these folks. But um, the material reality of it is that when someone tells me that they're my enemy and they want me dead, I take them at their word. Um, and, and frankly, like a lot of these folks, like maybe they can be reasoned with individually if you have enough time. Um, you know, maybe if I were able to spend months or years dealing with this person on an individual basis, I could find out what makes them tick and, you know, sort of ally their fears and, and, and make them understand uh, who I am and, and how I'm not trying to destroy their way of life or whatever. But I don't have that kind of time. They don't have that kind of time. And, you know, speaking from experience, they're just, they're there to fight. Um, and at, at that point, I think it becomes a practical matter of, I have to protect myself. I have to, uh, so, so I'm not gonna engage in the debate. You know, and, and it sh the onus should not be on queer folks, on, on black folks, on immigrants, on Muslims to defend their existence. Uh, I think when someone tells you that they are ideologically opposed to your life, um, you can take them at their word. And uh, I don't really think engaging with them in any sort of civil discourse, the civility is not there from the beginning. You know, when, when they're starting from you know, my position is that you should not be allowed to live. I don't think you need to be civil with that person. And Dr. Joe, your your exchange took place in a psychiatric ward. So there was a guarantee of safety. A power dynamic involved. So I think like it's it's a very sound thing to want to have that discussion. But first things first, I would say. It's like we need I, a, yeah. a stronger guarantee of people's safety. I, I think that for you personally, I think for you in that moment, it's not your job to make those people feel heard or coddle their feelings. That's not your, your mission objective. Your mission objective is to be safe and to thrive. And we ask enough of trans people in this society and someone that's dealing with, you know, PTSD or something from, from online abuse. I certainly understand that. That's not your problem. That said, as a society, as an entire country, we have to reckon with the fact that we're creating, we have created an entire generation of lost boys. Um, you know, we're creating a lot of really, really dangerous individuals, which is why this gun violence is so terrible in this country. Um, I met a lot of gamer gators when I went and toured colleges all around this country. And before I did that, I had this idea in my mind that these were monsters or 30-year-old men that lived in their mom's basement. Like I had all these stereotypes that who was sending me death threats. And when I started going to colleges, I realized I met them. 
and I realized these were really deeply under-socialized, desperately, desperately, desperately lonely young men that just frankly had no interaction with women whatsoever. And I think we've created an entire generation of, of young men that are looking desperately for a father figure, which is why they fall into being led by Joe Rogan or Donald Trump, or, you know, any of these, these Jordan these, Peterson, these, yep. Jordan Peterson, these people that tap in and kind of, of, of lead them. So I don't think it's your mission objective. I think it's fine for you as an individual to say, this is not my problem. But I think for us as a country, we do have to have a compassionate uh, and holistic look at this problem that we've got and figure out how to, to lead these young these young boys before the show we were both talking about how much we love uh hassan over on twitch yeah this is somebody i think there's a very very strong male role model he's pro-trans he has you know politics that are generally inclusive and he's out there modeling masculinity in a way feminists just simply cannot i think that's hugely positive so i think what we need as a society is more hassans and more people out there to kind of you know, guide young men along and just put them on a healthier path well I mean, I, I definitely agree with that, um, but I would say the problem is older than just this generation. Um, the, the, we, you know, in America specifically, and I would say more broadly, like in the West, you know, Western culture, uh, the idea of masculinity is inherently wrapped up in violence and domination. We don't offer an alternative. You know, we, we tell boys and men that they're, their value lies in their capacity for violence and their capacity for overpowering someone else. You know, like I grew up in the eighties and nineties. I saw the Rambo movies. There's a reason that before I transitioned, when I was trying to, to be a man, the way you're supposed to be a man, uh, I joined the army. I went special forces, uh, you know, like, because these, these were the models for masculinity that were put in front of me. Um, and it was always, you know, like, Every, every piece of it, I thought I was, you know, pre-transition, we'll say late 90s, early 2000s, like I thought I was entirely alone. Um, and I would sit here and I, I'd read these books that, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't think uh, that men thought the way I thought, but like I would try to convince myself like, well, you know, this book says that this is what I have to be. So I'm going to do this thing. But now like I, I read some of the things that a lot of these, uh, you know, alt-right men right and a lot of these incels and gamer gators and like all these people that have that have taken this sort of the doomer pilled political line where they just you know they're they're all jokerified you know like they, they they've decided that this system is not built for them even though like history shows otherwise uh and their anger is sort of misdirected but the the point is like i've, I've come to realize that they all say the same things they've read the same media it's it's cultural it's not a thing that we can just fix overnight and um you know a lot of it we are putting the onus on sort of uh i would say on on the people that are being more directly impacted being being oppressed for lack of a better word uh we're telling women that they have to fix these men uh we're telling uh queer people that they have to just be patient enough to explain why they should be allowed to exist and and 
the unfortunate fact is that those things are not going to change unless we actually do that. And it is extremely unjust that we're put in that position in the first place. And to just get back to just the idea of Boston Children's Hospital and people very loudly not understanding. I, uh, so I'm on the autism spectrum and I did an interview for a documentary on autism and I was asked about intersectionality and so many people cringe at the words like, oh, this was a social judgment. Well, all it means is realizing that we all have our own stuff going on. So autism wasn't in, like even written down the DSM until like the late 1900s. And for a long time, even after that, people acted like it didn't exist. It's like these kids are just misbehaving. ADHD, these kids are just misbehaving. It doesn't actually exist. You're making it up. On a lighter note, ASMR, that tingly feeling people get in their heads. Everyone who had it thought that they were alone, didn't exist, made it up. So why is it so hard to, to imagine that someone isn't comfortable with the role they were assigned at birth? Why is that so hard to, to wrap your head around? Well, that's the thing. They do acknowledge it. They do believe it. Uh, like th this is my personal take. They know that these folks exist. The evidence is in front of them, but it comes back to the same, it's the same cultural uh, background, the same cultural backdrop. It's like, well, these kids with ADHD and autism, just beat them, just beat them. Eventually they'll, they'll start acting right. You know, and the same thing was applied to queer and trans people, you know, like I grew up in a time and place where being queer or trans was not okay. I was sent to reparative therapy. Um, you know, I, I think if anything, like I'm, I'm an example of how that stuff doesn't work. Uh, you know, I did all the, I did all the man things and I did them better than most men. Uh, and it still didn't change anything. You know, I, you couldn't beat the woman out of me. Um, and and I, I think regardless of whether it's successful or not, the, uh, the idea that they have is that they can just force people to uh, sort of adapt to the system that isn't in place, that, that you can force people to, uh, I can't even think of the word right now, but to, to, to integrate into these systems, you know? We have a remarkable ability to dehumanize each other. Yes. Human beings. But what's interesting is I think it, it takes that dehumanization to then engage and enact that anger and violence. I think human beings are much more protective of each other than we want to give each other credit for. And the only way, I really believe this, the only way we can really hurt somebody else is to say they're not human and dehumanize them. That's really interesting because we can, we can reframe that and say, that's actually kind of encouraging. As soon as we start seeing each other as human, we will be less likely to want to hurt each other. That's one of the big challenges. How do we do that? And that's, that's part of, of the discussion. I, I'm, you know, an optimist as well, hopefully a little bit of a realist here and there. But I do have faith because we have evolved a new part of our brain. Right? You know, we have the limbic system, which is the ancient, primitive, emotional, irrational part of the brain. 
That's a lot of what we're talking about. But we have a new part, the prefrontal cortex, the ability to have rational thought, to see a problem, execute a plan, and anticipate what will happen next. We can anticipate what will happen next if we remain limbic. We will destroy ourselves. You know, there'll be one group that maybe will destroy another group, but ultimately we will dilute the diversity that has made us human. And that's where we need to get back to. It's in the diversity that we have the strength to survive, that we have the strength to adapt. How do we encourage that diversity in each other? And that, that's something that I believe in. Look, we are not that far removed from, from ancient, ancient ancestors. And so, you know, when you talk about this, this male image of dominance and aggression, it's absolutely true. But there were reasons for that many, many millions of years ago that may not apply now. We just have to be able to get there before we destroy ourselves. And I think we can, I, I really do. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you on the idea of diversity being our strength. Um, but I, I would like to pose a question. Um, when you talk about the, the limbic system being the sort of driver of this reactionary, uh, you know, the, the, the reaction and the violence, um, how do you square that circle when it comes to looking at projects like the Holocaust? Because, you know, when, when you had when you had Nazis in power, it wasn't just them being reactive. You know, it took the prefrontal cortex. It took all of that logic and planning to organize these death camps. Agreed. Uh, it was downright machinistic. Right. So when I, one of the roles I have is, is I work a lot with folks with substance use issues. Mm. And there's a really interesting study that looked at the dopamine levels in a person. So all drugs and alcohol force the brain to make dopamine. That's an ancient chemical of pleasure, has other functions in our world and our body, but it is a very selfish chemical. When you get triggered, like, I don't know, does the name Pavlov ring a bell? Sorry, mm -hmm. it's, no, it's a bad joke, thank you. But Pavlov's condition, right, exactly, does it ring a bell? So the condition response, you get triggered. There's a little blip of dopamine that goes up. It's the teaser. And then it, it's basically saying to your brain, there's something good over there, go get that. Then when you look, the dopamine levels dip down below baseline, slowly increase until you get the drug. It's that moment after the trigger that's critical because the limbic system doesn't plan, just like what you're saying. The limbic system has to take control of the prefrontal cortex to make that plan. So there will always be a moment for you to make another plan in hmm. substance world. There will always be that moment to be reflective instead of reflexive, to wonder instead of worry. They will always be. It's just the way the brain works. So you're absolutely right. 
there was a lot of limbic response and then the planning happened to enact that limbic response. But the limbic doesn't plan. It's impulsive. That's things right then. So yeah, how do we capture that moment? The only way to do it is to recognize it's happening. Yeah. I just uh, celebrated 20 years uh, sober from you know, rehab. I had to go to there for polyaddictive substance abuse. That really rings true to me, everything you just said. Mm, yeah. And, and you know, we, we congratulate folks on their sobriety. Yeah. Um, but it's also like, you know, addiction is not about morality. It's about mortality. It's just the way the brain works. And you've been able to take your brain and say, ah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to shift to my prefrontal. How many times have you done something limbically impulsively and slapped your forehead as if trying to jumpstart your prefrontal cortex? You know, what was I thinking? You know, that's what we do. <laughs> and that's what we need to do as a society, as a world, because we know what will happen next. I, I truly believe we are on the cusp of an evolutionary leap. We just have to survive long enough to get there. Oof, here's right hoping. There. That's here's a tall hoping. order. It is, it is, especially from a short Jewish guy. So, <sighs> you know, but we can do this, but not alone, not alone. But you know, the, the, Tom wanted to have this discussion and I'm so grateful for it because we are faced with this, this insidious, creeping darkness. You know, we, we are. But once we can see it, and how do you see something in the dark? You don't. You got to throw light on it. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. And that's if, where... if I can, yeah, if I could just venture an opinion, I think that you know, as we're developing the Gamergate television show, um, something that's really important to me is I, I've turned this down a lot because it kind of portrays the other people as, you know, evil or just all, I've turned it down when they've wanted to tell it as kind of a feminist horror story. I do think on the left, all too often, we fall into uh, like we're not going to get anywhere with this continued like the other person's evil you know like just continuing to hammer each other like we've got to start building coalitions and like like start moving in a unified direction like something i think that's so frustrating about the turf movement is you know, you've got real threats to women's bodily autonomy going on in the united states right now we're talking about freaking trans people that's the big threat when you've got half the states in this country. Like we've got to start thinking more critically about what the mission objective is and what we're fighting for rather than who the villain or the, the target of the week is. And I think we need serious strategic people on the left that are focused on coalition building because there's no successful movement in our country that hasn't involved bringing people together that don't agree on everything and trying to move in the same direction on critical things. So I, I very much feel like that is, that is the way forward. Alana, you in, re in response to both Brianna and Dr. Joe, um, I would say that's where we, 
we have a lot of hard work ahead of us in that we have to actually acknowledge uh, the things that have happened. We have to acknowledge the evil that does exist. And I'm not going to say, I don't think people are evil, but actions are, you know, and I feel like we can't proceed with this project until we acknowledge sort of the sins of our fathers, the sins of our past. You know, we, we can't move forward as this shining beacon, this, this, you know, city on the hill, you know, like Ronald Reagan used to be so fond of saying, if we don't acknowledge that it's built on a foundation of murder, you know, like you, you look at the United States and indigenous genocide is what this country is built on. This, this, this country was built uh, by the hands of slaves on the bones of indigenous people. And we can't just go forward and be good people until we openly acknowledge those facts and wrestle with them and, and come out on top, you know? And, and that's why when it comes to coalition building, we have to acknowledge the ways in which we've betrayed each other. We have to acknowledge the ways in which we're not um, coming at it uh, fr from, a, from an, a genuine position, you know? Um, like when it comes to when it comes to turfs, for instance, right? Um, look at look at the folks that they are uh, sort of in bed with. You know, like Matt Walsh. This guy's like an open theocratic, oh. self-described theocratic fascist. But turfs, supposedly feminists, are on his side because he's going after trans people, and that's where you have to sort of, you know, like the the second wave feminist movement which is where a lot of you know like turf ideology comes from is that old second wave feminist movement it sort of it, it threw away black folks it, it threw away trans folks um it it was it was a white feminist movement and that's the kind of history that we have to acknowledge if we ever want to move forward you know you can't you can't just say well if someone says they're a feminist well they they're definitely on my side you know and and i wish we could do that but but that's that's the problem, you know. The the waters have been muddied, and that's what that's the way fascism works. That's the way turfs are operating. It's it's the same sort of uh, you know. I'm going to take my ideology and I'm going to wrap it in the language of your ideology, and that's how I'm going to recruit. Mm. So so when it comes to coalition building and when it comes to sort of uh, shining a light on things, we have to acknowledge what we have to actually acknowledge history, the real history, what's actually happened. Um, and, and that's the starting point. I think you can do that. I do think on the left, we tend to focus on our differences a lot more than what brings us together. And, and that's my message is that we need to, something I've really learned. And one of the reasons like during Gamergate, I would describe myself as more of an activist today. I would describe myself as more of a political professional because it's a different set of skills. It's fundraising. It's working with, uh, you know, it is working with uh, the FEC, which there are a ton of regulations there, is donating money to progressive candidates that support those things that both you and I very strongly agree on, like reforming the police, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's supporting, it's the bread and butter electoral politics of how you make that happen. And the, the people on the left that I respect the most personally, this is just for me, are the ones that naturally bring people together to celebrate those common goals. I agree with you. Turfs are too far gone. Even as we're recording this, JK Rowling is basically likening trans women to rapists on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Disgusting. She's, she's gone. You can't save her and you can't save the Matt Walsh's or the people that are, are in that movement. But I do think that you can 
take that great middle out there and say like, look, this is what's under attack. You're never going to find a trans woman that is against abortion ever, right? All women are under attack right now. Trans women, you know, cis women, uh, you know, uh, trans men that can get pregnant, all women like are under attack right now. Like, like uh, we need to focus on what brings us together and accomplish those political goals and get serious about showing up and voting. I think that's how you stay away from despair because it's so easy to feel despair in this moment. Like all of us have a responsibility to do what we can. And it's not just sitting around admiring the problem. I agree with everything you're saying, but we have to find the things that we can do that make that 1% change. And we need to take personal agency. We have the power. Like this is like when you say like, look, this system is broken. This system is broken. This system is broken. I agree with you but you're also giving that system all your power if you're not taking the agency in yourself, like let's go change it. And I want to take that power back for myself and feel responsibility to do what I can. Well, I absolutely believe we need to be empowering ourselves to change these systems. However, I am skeptical of being able to do it at the ballot box, at least uh, not entirely. You know, I'm not one of those people that's going to say, don't vote. It doesn't matter. It absolutely does. Mm-hmm. But that said, voting is not enough. It has to be a lot more than just voting. They count on winning, and then that's it. So, I mean, Brianna, you were even talking about before the show got started the sort of uh, the 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 critiques you had of of the the Democratic Party politics that you saw behind. Oh, yeah. the oh and, it's terrible. I mean, that's that's part of the problem when it becomes like this sort of soulless numbers game of like, well, we're going to put this much money towards this thing. And, and, you know, like it's, it's how, again, we talk about, I talk about material analysis a lot. Uh, look at some of the mistakes the democratic party's made running um, Hillary Clinton as the presidential candidate the first time after decades of a right-wing smear campaign against the Clintons. Sure. Um, that was just, I mean, I could, I couldn't tell you how many times when I was on a special forces ODA I heard Nancy Pelosi's name spat with venom. Uh, I was not politically engaged. I uh, like full disclosure, when I was in the army, I was not political at all. I was just going with the flow. But I heard Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton's names just like shit on so many times. And and I think there are right reasons to shit on them. There are. Oh, there absolutely are reasons to, but those were not the reasons that were that were. Um, um, the, The thing is, it's like, yeah, I'm just talking about like the the sort of the actualities, the, the material conditions, material analysis here. The Democratic Party was not in touch with the situation on the ground, you know, sure. and, and, and picking Hillary Clinton as the candidate was pretty much the worst thing they could have done. And that's how we ended up with a Donald Trump. Sure. I think you I think you have to vote, but then you also so let's look at a very concrete example, the student loan debt thing. Mm. I and a ton of other people have been out there. We've I voted for Joe Biden. I helped like arrange fundraising for Joe Biden. I did everything I could. He was not my first choice. He was like my 20th choice, right? I would have taken Warren or Bernie or any number of people before him. But he got the nomination and we needed to beat Trump. 
So I didn't just vote and say, okay, I'm done. I'll see y'all again in four years. We stayed on him. And there's all this work behind the scenes of cranking up the pressure on that administration to take student loan forgiveness uh, seriously. You know, I, over and if you hadn't, course, he wouldn't have acted. You're you're absolutely right. And so this is what I'm saying: stay engaged, and don't just like have this bedtime story idea of democracy. Right? We had a policy that we specifically wanted. It wasn't as much as I wanted, but it was better than like a lot of people are going to benefit from that specific policy. So stay on it, stay engaged. Don't give them your power. Here's a concrete example of us taking back our power, putting pressure, working through the system and getting a good result. We can do that in so many places. But we have to work outside that system as well. To a point, I agree, yeah. And we have to understand that, like, so again, back to we're not shitting on voters. We have to understand that we can work together with everyone. Like, I, if I could just snap my fingers and wish granted, like, I drop left, right, because most people fall, like, left of center, believe it or not, in the United States. Like, they just don't know it. Like, if you ask them, like, about things like student loan forgiveness or a single-payer health care, like, these things that are labeled left, but people are like, it's a scary word. It's a very scary word. Where it's like, oh, like, like Stalin, but we don't have to be left versus right. It, we can be top down. Yeah, I agree no, with that. There's nothing wrong with anger. It's what you do with it that's important. Yeah. And it's how you use it. Anger is about change. We get angry when we want somebody to do something different. Start doing something, stop doing something. Anger is more useful than despair. Yes. <laughs> that's my favorite line from powerful. Terminator. Yes, yes. But it's, um, it's not the same as aggression. Aggression is the enactment of anger in a way that hurts. But anger, the most important social changes have occurred because of anger. It's how you use that anger. That's really critical in this because we have a brain that can very quickly become limbic. And you know, one of my phrases, keep it frontal, don't go limbic, right? So that we can use this this brain of ours. Also about police reform, I don't think I want to reform it. I want to completely redo it. I mean, right? Why would we want to reform the same thing? The wor words that we use are so important. We don't realize how influenced we are by words. In my field in psychiatry, I am, I am trying to get people to stop using the word disorder, you know, because it separates people bipolar disorder, you know, substance use disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, as if you were responding to the stress of trauma wrong. Gender identity trauma. disorder. Right, exactly, right? Disorder, so these words are critical the way we use them. But in the town I live in, we have a person who is the head of our police force, and he doesn't use the word force. Right? It's not a police force. It's a community policing. And you want to talk with somebody who's got the right way of doing it, a way that makes people feel they are part of the community, come and talk with our chief of police. I, I'm serious. He's absolutely remarkable. And I, I just wish that we could, you know, elevate him so that he could teach everyone how to do this. But we're 
we're in this world where we have so much division. And part of that has to do also with the way our brains are. We keep, we keep attributing morality to it. And so, you know, uh, uh, if, if we can take responsibility for what we have done without being blamed, that's different. Responsibility is empowering. Blame is shaming. But we have done some terrible things for which we have to be responsible. But as soon as somebody blames you for it, they're gonna, that person's gonna put up a resistance. So, so, so I'm, I am absolutely not disagreeing with anything anyone's saying here. It's, it's the messaging of it. It's the optics of it. It's how we get it done so that another person doesn't feel devalued just the way we have. So how do you ask for accountability without placing blame? How do, you tell a, how do you tell a black mother whose son's been killed by the cops that she has to be calm and reasonable and not put pressure on the cop that did the, you know, pulled the trigger? Well, that's not what I'm saying at all. No, that cop who pulled the trigger is held responsible for it. But they're not. But they must be. I agree with you. They're not. That's, that's one of the shifts that we have to make. I agree with you. But... <laughs> Our brains are designed in such a way that as soon as you feel blamed, you are going to put up a defensive wall. You're going to put up resistance and, and, and nothing happens after that. Because you, uh, you think that like, oh, you hate me because I'm a white man. Like... Whatever it is. And again, I, I'm just talking from my experience in psychiatry with sure. this, you know, sort of shrinky. Um, it, and that's what the I am is for. The I am is a tool, it's a roadmap. That was the best you could do. It doesn't mean it's a free ride. But if you blame yourself, instead of looking at why you're doing it, you develop and create resistance. We have created resistance to change by simply using the word disorder in, in my field. Why on earth? Would somebody want to come and talk with me if they think they're not going to be viewed as less valuable? And this value is, it's, it is the common thread of all of us. That's where we have the commonality. We all want to feel valued. So how do we get there? Yeah. And that's, that's the journey. It is worth it. And um, I, I know that we can bring a lot of other people along with it. I agree with you. We need communities. We need coalitions. We need to, to capitalize on our propensity to form groups. But we need a big, big group that again, has a diversity within it with that one shared belief that you're valuable. I love it. I love it. Okay. Now, this has been a fantastic discussion. I, I so appreciate it. More to follow, no doubt. But I know we got to bounce. Small change is going to big effects. The I am the four domains. Brianna, what small change can you recommend to our listeners given our topic? Small change, I think I would say, is I, 
small change I would say is think about think about the words that you're using online. Um, one of the things I had to learn during Gamergate was when you have a really big platform, you have to learn to use it responsibly. And I often worry that in fighting things, we can become the thing that we're fighting. So my message to anyone out there is, you know, next time you get super riled up online, you know, maybe think twice, like just ask yourself, am I adding to the conversation? You know, there are times where it's very appropriate to put somebody on blast, uh, you know, uh, particularly if they're a public figure, um, but sometimes it's not. So you, know, you said judiciously, think about that. That would be my message. Lana, small changes can have big effects. What small change do you recommend to our listeners? The one I recommend is to be an example, um, model the behavior that you want to see in other people. Um, maybe it's just, uh, you know, I'm not a Christian, um, having come from the background that I did, but, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of the biblical stuff still kind of resonates with me a little bit. You know, um, it's literally like be that example, model that behavior. Uh, don't, don't expect things from other people that you're not willing to do yourself. Um, so that's where, you know, the kindness and compassion comes in. And I, I feel like from this discussion, people might not get the idea that I'm a compassionate person. I promise I am. We believe it. Absolutely. But, but yeah, I, that, that would be, that would be my, my small thing. Just model the behavior that you want to see in other people. The golden rule. And then my colleague would say the platinum rule, right? treat other people the way they want to be treated. So before we go, I know you got to go, but I'm going to start with Brianna. Because the four domains interconnect, not only do small changes have big effects, but you influence everyone. You control no one. You influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Brianna Wu, what kind of influence do you want to be? What kind of influence do I want to be? Um, you know, I think as a leader, I think it's your role in this world to to kind of model thoughtfulness um, and and being measured, particularly as I've I've gotten older. You know, um, you know, it, it's it's really hard, particularly when you're on the 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 left because you see these systems and it's easy to get very, very angry. So what I try to bring to the world is being thoughtful and, and measured and strategic in how I voice that uh, out there. So that is, that is how I try and model what I want to see in the world. And a lot of McLaughlin, what kind of influence do you want to be? I would I would say that currently my my project is to sort of uh, you know like with doing the athletic stuff. This is something I struggled with for a bit. I felt like it wasn't important enough to pursue, um, and that the backlash was just going to be the end of it. But um, I think for me, I want to sort of be an example for uh, for girls, for young women, for trans girls especially that they don't have to make themselves smaller um, and that they're allowed to take up space, uh, whether it be in athletics or anywhere else. Um, that's, that's pretty much it. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much, both of you. You know, you can read more about this. Unleashing the Power of Respect, the I Am Approach is one of the books I've written that's out there trying to get people to recognize when's the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? You don't. That is the power that we can unleash. But what the two of you are doing, it is, you know, it's it's not just compassionate, it's passionate. And that I truly appreciate. I truly appreciate your gift of time. Thank you so much, Tom. Nice job. Thanks for putting this together. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope we will get a chance to chat again. I do too. This was good. Thanks, everybody. Talk soon. Bye, everybody. Later.